0: It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Wednesday, July 1, 2020. Happy Canada Day. On today's episode, TV and movie librarian Stephen Tomlinson is here. He will be discussing the background and making of the 1956 movie by Cecil B. DeMille, The Ten Commandments. We played this talk from Stephen a while ago in April, but we're playing it again in case you missed it. On this day in history, July 1, 1867, of course was the effective date of the Constitution Act 1867. It was then called the British North America Act 1867 because, of course, it was a British law in the British Parliament that united the three separate colonies of the province of Canada, which was Ontario and Quebec, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. These were three colonies in British North America, and they were being transformed into a single dominion, a federal dominion within the British Empire called the Dominion of Canada. Now the Dominion of Canada was a term that sort of stuck around right up until the 1950s. You could have still seen it in documents and it was just what the country was called. But it raises a good question. What is a Dominion? How is it different from a colony? Was Canada really independent? And the answer is no. Canada really wasn't independent until later on. It's worth remembering that the Dominion of Canada was still a British colony. And When it stopped being a colony is a tricky question to answer because Canada gained more political control and governance over the years. Um, You've heard of the Statute of Westminster. And of course, that was another British law, an act in the British Parliament that said that Canadians or the federal government had autonomy and recognized the virtual independence of dominions like Canada. But then the answer to the question of when did Canada become independent... Well, the real answer to that is April 17, 1982. That was the day of the signing of the Proclamation of the Constitution Act by Queen Elizabeth II in Ottawa. You've seen this footage, maybe you watched it live. This is Prime Minister Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau with Queen Elizabeth II on Parliament Hill signing this document. When that document gets signed, that's truly when Canada becomes independent. The Constitution was now a Canadian document that Canadian governments, both the federal government and the provinces, had to agree to to make changes. And so maybe that's when we should be celebrating Canada Day, April. Although it's probably better that we celebrate it in July. It's warmer. The nights are long. And who really wants to celebrate anything in the middle of April? Well, that is This Day in History. And here is Stephen Tomlinson to talk about Cecil B. DeMille and the making of the Ten Commandments.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Stephen, the movie librarian here at the Code St. Luke Public Library. Following the direction of our public health authorities, the library is doing its part to help suppress the spread of COVID-19. And so we have had to close temporarily and cancel or postpone some of our library programs, but of course we look forward to reopening the library as soon as it is deemed safe for our community to do so. One of those library programs that we sometimes do is my own Let's Talk Movies, where we gather together to talk about a movie related subject accompanied by a slideshow of pictures to illustrate my own various talking points. Unfortunately, that slideshow component will not be available today, as you listen to me talk about the making of Cecil B. DeMille's 1956 film, The Ten Commandments, a subject I have chosen because, after all, we are entering the Passover period, which of course commemorates the flight out of Egypt. At 220 minutes, The Ten Commandments established most of the visual storylines, that we now associate with the Exodus story, Um, such as the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, and the burning bush, Uh, and establish the meaning of the term biblical epic. Indeed, everything about the Ten Commandments is impressive, from the fact that it was filmed on location in the Sinai Peninsula, to the mind-blowing for its time special effects. Cecil B. DeMille himself was once one of the biggest names in Hollywood, as was Charlton Heston, the actor he selected to play Moses, though not quite yet at the height of his star power at the time of making the film. DeMille's initial impulse for his remake of the Ten Commandments was to structure a film much like the 1923 version, which he had made during the silent era. With a biblical prologue followed by a modern story, perhaps a tale of civic corruption. But he scrapped that idea as inherently dated. Once the decision was made to go with an entirely biblical narrative, there was some thought given to illustrating each of the Ten Commandments through the personal stories of some of the people involved in the Exodus. But then, DeMille decided to let the story speak for itself. The proposed budget was non-existent. DeMille knew that the special effects would have to go far beyond what anybody had done before, so estimating what they would cost would be impossible. Certainly it would cost more than anybody had ever spent before on a movie. Paramount was understandably nervous, but studio head Adolf Zukor, for what seems to have been the first and only time, reminded everybody in the hierarchy who balked at the idea that the early success of DeMille's movies was responsible for the very existence of Paramount, and that DeMille was, in fact, the most consistently bankable director in the business. "'I, for one, think it's a good idea, not a stupid one,' Zucor said to the board. And after DeMille made some vague rumblings about doing the picture elsewhere, if Paramount lacked the backbone, the board acquiesced. When board member Frank Freeman looked over the figures DeMille had presented him with, he said, you know, CB, these figures, however preliminary, won't give your production company as big a percentage of returns as you got from your earlier movies, The Greatest Show on Earth and Samson and Delilah. DeMille explained that he was seeding a great deal of his profit percentage because of the risk paramount was undertaking. I can't tell you what the Ten Commandments will cost, he said, except that it will be a lot of money. As soon as the deal was done, the studio's anxiety was transferred to DeMille himself, who would be both director and producer of the movie. I didn't sleep, he would say about this period. I worried day and night. I wouldn't have lost a dollar... But I wouldn't have come out of it alive if I had ruined Paramount. It would have meant a hell of a lot more than the fact that I didn't make any money. By 1953, plans were well underway. DeMille believed that credibility was the key to the miracles of the story, with at least a semblance of what amounted to science undergirding the film. For the part of the Red Sea, he examined the work of government hurricane experts And decided that the event could most convincingly be dramatized through two gathering storms approaching the center of the frame, then colliding and discharging their fury downward into the sea, blowing apart the waters so that the characters could be seen to pass through. For the Ten Commandments, DeMille agreed to use this division. Paramount's designated widescreen process, which shot with 35 millimeter film, running not vertically, but horizontally, exactly like a 35 millimeter still camera. When Technicolor printed the film, the result was a picture of unparalleled clarity and stunningly saturated color. This division was also modern in that it could be exhibited In the widest of widescreen ratios, very close to the way most neighborhood theaters showed Cinemascope, which had started the whole widescreen revolution in 1952. There was only one problem. VistaVision had no provisions for stereophonic sound. Stereo, a fairly new invention, had greatly impressed DeMille when he saw the film version of The King and I, but Frank Freeman explained to him that the hierarchy of Paramount didn't believe that anybody bought tickets to movies because of their sound. Having gone through the transition to sound films himself in the late 1920s, DeMille strongly disagreed, but Freeman refused to upgrade, greatly upsetting the director. The story of Exodus as we know it drops Moses after he is discovered in the bulrushes, then picks him up again at the age of 30. DeMille and his writers had to devise a credible story for the intervening years, even if it was fanciful, so that the script would not be dogged by criticism from one religious group or another. Such sources for the script included the Midrash Rabbah, an ancient compilation of rabbinic commentaries, the Quran, Philo's Life of Moses, and the writings of Josephus and Eusebius. These texts were written centuries after the Exodus, and DeMille carefully referred to them as traditions rather than histories. But he argued that they still constituted valid evidence for the story of the film's first act, that Moses was in fact A prince of Egypt who had conducted a successful military campaign against Ethiopia and had been cast out by court intrigues, an idea drawn largely from Josephus and Eusebius. The backstory added a revenge motif to the Exodus story and was avidly seized upon by DeMille, who set up Moses and Ramses as rival princes This approach had been used by a writer named Dorothy Clark Wilson for a novel entitled Prince of Egypt in 1949, but script consultant Henry Nordlinger convinced DeMille that basing the script on ancient texts, however dubious, would give DeMille more veracity than adapting a modern historical novel. Despite these high-minded attempts at authenticity, the script ultimately devolved, at least in part, into a characteristic Demille plot of two men, in this case Moses and Ramses, vying for the same woman, Nefretteri. Upping the ante, of course, was that each of them is after the same throne, that of Egypt. Charlton Heston was always DeMille's first choice to play Moses, after a colleague pointed out that a bearded Heston looked exactly like Michelangelo's statue of Moses. If he's good enough for Michelangelo, he's good enough for me, DeMille announced. And so Heston signed on for the bargain rate of $50,000. If he was not yet a huge star, the Ten Commandments would transform the actor's career, and permanently elevate him into a Hollywood icon. DeMille had wanted Audrey Hepburn for the part of Nefertiri, but for obscure reasons, it never worked out. The role of Joshua went to John Derrick, even though, as DeMille noted sourly, perhaps by way of commenting on the actor's private life, he knows nothing about the Bible. For Ramses, DeMille ran past Stuart Granger, William Holden, and Michael Rennie. But on February 26th, 1953, DeMille saw Yule Brenner in The King and I on Broadway. How would you like to play the most powerful man on earth, he said to him during the intermission. It was an invitation no actor could resist, but Brenner was tied up with the show, and so DeMille agreed to hold off production until the actor was free the next year in 1954 and also agreed to pay him considerably more than Heston to do so. For Bethaya DeMille wanted Jane Meadows, but she didn't want to leave her husband, Steve Allen, and their children for the necessary length of time. So instead, friend and actor Henry Wilcoxon suggested Nina Foch, with whom he had just worked, and Scaramouche. For the part of Dathan, DeMille made an offer to Raymond Massey, then thought better of it, and decided on Jack Palance instead. But when Palance's agent stole a copy of the script to give to his client, a furious DeMille needed an alternative. Jesse Lasky, Jr., suggested that Edward G. Robinson was perfect. A great screen villain with a strong presence. But the only problem was that Robinson had been not quite blacklisted in Hollywood, but rather graylisted for his liberal politics. The arch conservative DeMille decided to hire him anyway, saying he had paid too much attention to such things in the past. Much to the lasting gratitude of Robinson, who, writing much later in his memoirs, said that DeMille had returned him to films, and in doing so, restored my self-respect. For Lilia, DeMille wanted Pierre-Anjali, but MGM wouldn't loan her out, so he hired Deborah Paget without an interview. John Carradine was working at Paramount on a Bob Hope picture, when he ran into DeMille in the commissary. DeMille hugged him and asked, are you going to be with me? And Caradine was abruptly cast for the role of Aaron. Mostly DeMille paid below market value for acting talent. Yvonne DiCarlo worked for just $25,000, while Henry Wilcoxon, his friend, a week during pre-production and post-production and only a thousand a week during production for both associate producing the film as well as acting in it. It didn't matter. As Vincent Price remembered, you couldn't call yourself a star unless you had been in a DeMille picture. When word broke that DeMille was making an epic about the Bible, other studios quickly got into the ancient act. Fox made the Egyptian, Warners made both Land of the Pharaohs and Helen of Troy, all of which reached theaters well before the Ten Commandments. DeMille's primary response to the Egyptian was to shudder at the presence of Victor Mature, with whom he had worked on 1949's Samson and Delilah. Worst actor I ever worked with, he said. Never want to see him again as long as i live when demille had earlier made up his mind to make the ten commandments he had opened negotiations with king farouk for for permission to film in egypt but by 1954 the king had been deposed and colonel gamal abdel nasser was now in charge with whom demille had to engage in furious renegotiations because the location work was quickly to begin that fall. Preparation for a DeMille movie was always painstaking, but The Ten Commandments was unusually complex. Instead of having the studio confect costume jewelry for the film, DeMille ordered exact reproductions of ancient Egyptian jewelry that used real gold and precious stones. DeMille's customary fetish for physical authenticity caused some problems too, most notably for Anne Baxter, who was hired to play Nefratiri, and costumed to resemble Claudette Colbert in the 1934 film Cleopatra as much as was humanly possible. She later remembered that she did costume fittings for eight months and asserted, I made two other pictures in between these fittings. Somewhat vainly, perhaps, the finished script carried this opening manifesto. Quote, All these things are as I have found them in the Holy Scriptures, the glorious Koran, the ancient Hebrew writing, and in the annals of modern discovery. Signed, CBDM. End quote. In Cecil B. DeMille's mind, he was not interpreting the life of Moses. Rather, he was filming the definitive historical account. Initially, DeMille was quietly jubilant upon arriving for filming in Egypt, but the mood didn't last. The letters home of the production secretary, Joan Broskin, provide an invaluable record of a shoot that started out as difficult soon became exhausting and even finally life-threatening. When he got to Egypt, Demille inspected the gates of Ramses and the avenue of the Sphinxes that had been erected by Hollywood technicians in the desert about fifteen miles from Cairo, and three miles from the pyramids. The gates were a hundred and seven feet high, in front of which stretched an avenue of sphinxes, that was nearly a quarter mile long. DeMille took it all in and pronounced himself pleased. The cameras began turning on October 14, 1954. By October 22nd, DeMille had already lost weight and would eventually drop over 20 pounds. And he was already completely brown from the sun. On October 28th, Much of the principal crew came to the set to watch DeMille film Yule Brenner leading Pharaoh's chariots past the Avenue of the Sphinxes. DeMille noticed that Brenner was nervous about driving a chariot in front of the Egyptian army, who were being used as extras. Don't worry, said DeMille. It's safe. Here, I'll show you, and then proceeded to get into the chariot race the horses around in a circle, and stop exactly on the spot where he had taken the reins. The scene eventually completed, Brenner took off for Acapulco, leaving behind his friend, the film's doctor, Max Jacobson. Jacobson would become known as the quintessential Dr. Feelgood, dispensing his specially concocted brand of pick-me-ups to dozens of celebrity patients, among them DeMille himself, but also stateside to John F. Kennedy, Alan J. Lerner, and Tennessee Williams. DeMille had been seeing Jacobson occasionally since January 1952. No one seemed to know or care what Jacobson was prescribing at that time, only that it banished fatigue and made sleep seem optional. In fact, Jacobson was injecting customized doses of methadrine, which raises blood pressure, relieves fatigue, and induces a touch of euphoria. When DeMille's energy lagged on set, he would see the doctor for what was euphemistically called a pick-me-up, but as a consequence, became increasingly hooked on both the drug itself and the doctor who prescribed it. Jacobson's medical license would later be revoked, but only long after DeMille's death, just a few years later, in 1959. The Mitchell Camera Company had built four custom VistaVision cameras, especially for use by DeMille, and they worked splendidly in the Egyptian desert. But in other respects, the production was assaulted by the elements. Most days, the temperature ran past 90 degrees Fahrenheit, all by 7 a.m. Despite this, and no doubt with the help of Dr. Jacobson's magical pick-me-ups, by November 1st, DeMille was almost four days ahead of schedule, and was even making shots that were originally intended to be done back in Hollywood. But there were gathering pressures. Some overcast weather had angered DeMille. And he grew snappish with crew members, reducing a few to tears. As on their previous picture together, DeMille liked Charlton Heston's intense seriousness and took a page from his experience working with H. B. Warner back in 1927 on The King of Kings to instruct Heston that when he was in costume, he should never sit down on the set never be seen reading a newspaper, having a cup of coffee, or talking on the phone. When he was in wardrobe for Moses, Heston was to act as Moses. In so doing, an aura of charismatic reverence was created that DeMille hoped would seep into the film. When DeMille and a skeleton crew reached the base of Mount Sinai to shoot Moses climb up the mountain, There were no roads of any kind. There were about 60 people, plus porters, traveling in a fleet of Plymouths that also held provisions for the troop. The entire party had to walk the last mile up the mountain. The 73-year-old DeMille himself was, like Moses, at the head of the column, head down and panting, but setting a pretty good pace. Shooting on Sinai itself took three days. These scenes in Egypt would endanger and ultimately probably shorten DeMille's life. But to him, they were seemingly worth it. Mount Sinai, the desert, and the exodus, the primary scenes shot in Egypt, would validate the rest of the film and give it the scent of the real. The base for the scenes on Mount Sinai was the Monastery of Saint Catherine, one of the oldest monasteries in the world. There were a dozen monks left in what had once been a flourishing community and only one of them spoke English. From the monastery it was a two-hour camel ride to the top of Sinai. The cameras had to be taken apart and reassembled at the location. The days were brutally hot and the nights were chilly. One night, Henry Wilcoxon took DeMille up a long flight of stairs to the roof of the monastery to soak in the beautiful isolation and look at the stars. Wilcoxon noticed that DeMille was laboring. His color was bad. He was gasping for breath. But he refused Wilcoxon's offer of a hand up. DeMille was by now visibly aging and a long way from serious medical care. Meanwhile, Charlton Heston earned the respect of everybody on set for his uncomplaining work ethic in the scenes where he had to stumble through the parched wilderness, which was as much broken stones as sand, according to one observer. Every time he stumbled and fell, he had to land on these sharp three-cornered stones. His legs, thighs, arms, and chest were a welter of bruises, and yet the man kept at it under the gruesome sun. On top of that, Heston earned the gratitude of the prop men when, after a take, he would wipe his own footprints from the sand with his robe before the next take. It took DeMille and the company an entire day to get these shots that would be edited together for a montage. One day, there was no water for five long hours, as someone had forgotten to completely turn off the tap on the 10-gallon water can on the back of the prop truck. On another day, a group of Bedouins passed behind the cameras, and the braying of their camels meant that DeMille had to shoot without sound. The land was not only savagely hot, it was uneven, so most of the shots were made on a tripod. But head grip Dominic Seminero somehow laid forty feet of track on Mount Sinai, so DeMille could get a dolly shot of Moses going up the mountain to receive the commandments, and later, eighty feet of track for another dolly shot over a riverbed. These tracking shots gave some movement to the sequence of Moses' exile in the wilderness, and DeMille regarded them as both physical and engineering feats of ingenuity. With the Sinai scenes done, the monks rang all the monastery bells in farewell, and the Bedouins, who had worked as extras and porters on the shoot, staged for the company The Wolf and the Sheep, a little drama of group action, foiling, marauding wolves that the Bedouins, it was said, had enacted for thousands of years. DeMille was thrilled to imagine that Moses might have seen the very same play performed on the very same spot millennia ago. DeMille was working so fast and had organized and mobilized his crew so well that the scheduled 12 days of Sinai locations were completed in nine days. The Egyptian government also proved as good as as its word, and the assistance promised DeMille all showed up. Men, horses, and nine airplanes for use as wind machines among it. Because the sun went down early, DeMille and company rose at 4.30 a.m., so as to start shooting by 6.30 or even 7. A couple of mornings began with DeMille and Heston swimming in the Red Sea. That is until someone told them that it was full of sharks. The production day lasted until 4.30 p.m. Then DeMille went over the next day's complicated schedule with the technicians, rarely getting to bed before 11 p.m. As if the sun and the work itself were not bad enough, Dysentery hit everybody at one time or another, usually for around three days, and everybody began to visibly lose weight. After the Sinai location, the crew returned to Cairo to shoot the Exodus itself. Behind Pharaoh's gates was the company production headquarters comprised of offices, storage sheds, a medical tent, horse and sheep corrals and parking for the fleets of cars as well as a commissary large enough to feed thousands of extras, water for hundreds of livestock, and corrals for the dozens of horses that pulled Pharaoh's chariots. The structures were wood and some had awnings out front so people could take advantage of whatever breezes were to be had. None of the buildings, of course, was air-conditioned. The set and headquarters encompassed 60 acres in all, and Time magazine called the recreation of the Gates of Ramses the biggest piece of Egyptian construction since the Suez Canal. On November 7th, it was time to stage the Exodus sequence. Unit production manager Don Rob. Who would spend three days short of a year on this one location alone, had realized that trucks couldn't supply enough water for the location, so had had wells drilled to draw water for the thousands of people and animals that would be in the Exodus sequence. Rob's unit was responsible for pumping around 200,000 gallons a day just to stay even with demand. And buses began running the night before, 17 of them ferrying extras out from Cairo. The buses shuttled back and forth all night long, spilling extras out on the sand, after which they were fed, given water, and costumed. Bob Goldstein's prop department had been on site for six months buying and building every wagon, every bundle, every animal to be used in the sequence. The lowest estimate for the number of extras used was 8,000, although Assistant Director Chico Day thought that for some shots there may have been as many as 12 to 14,000 people used. The prop departments also had charge of the animals and used 5,000 camels 5,000 water buffalo, about 4,000 oxen, 2,000 geese, and 2,000 ducks, all for the scene of the exodus out of Egypt. Since all of the extras and most of the 45 assistant directors were Egyptians, communication was crucial. Henry Wilcoxon learned 24 basic sentences in Arabic. The nonverbal signals included trumpets played over loudspeakers and the firing of blank cartridges, while DeMille himself used a little gold whistle that penetrated for several hundred yards. When DeMille would give verbal directions, an interpreter by his side would often translate them into Arabic, and the assistants in the crowd would make sure the instructions filtered down to their specific people. Indeed, the set was so vast that binoculars were standard issue for the production personnel, and all departments of the production were identified by various colored streamers worn on their hats. For example, assistant directors wore red, props crew wore green, and wardrobe people wore white. All of the four VistaVision cameras were deployed for this Exodus sequence. And DeMille rode the A camera mounted on a boom in front of Heston, leading the multitude behind him. While the other three cameras mounted on specially designed cars were initially hidden behind Sphinx for close shots. Charlton Heston said at the time that, and I quote, the outstanding ingredient in Mr. DeMille's talent as a filmmaker is his absolutely insatiable capacity for an infinity of detail and his relentless determination to get what he wants, end quote. Boy, I'll say truer words have never been spoken. In any case, welcome to part two of my talk about the great Hollywood producer director Cecil B. DeMille and the making of his 1956 version of the Ten Commandments. I say version because DeMille made an earlier, slightly less ambitious one all the way back in the silent era. But of course it is the 1956 version with Charlton Heston that everyone remembers. The one many of us first saw as small children. And because of that impressionable age, we recall it vividly still. Indeed, more than 60 years after its release, in spite of vast changes in special effects technology and in film style, as well as in the culture at large, the 10 commandments continues to be a part of the social fabric of the world. During the on-location shooting in Egypt of the Exodus sequence in November of 1954, Charlton Heston was quoted as telling the press, the outstanding ingredient in Mr. DeMille's talent as a filmmaker is his absolutely insatiable capacity for an infinity of detail and his relentless determination to get what he wants. Generally in admirable quality, I think we can agree, there can be little doubt that DeMille took his relentless determination to extraordinary lengths. One day, while Heston stood in full costume and makeup in the boiling Egyptian sun, DeMille began rearranging people in the crowd, and Heston quotes him as saying something typical like, the woman with the blue shawl between the feet of the third colossi from the back I don't want her there. No, no, the third colossi. That's the woman. I want her down near the sand. Dear God, thought Heston, is he going to do this with 8,000 people? And you know what? He very nearly did. And you think this is ridiculous. We will never, never turn a camera. But finally he got what he wanted and that's when he shot. And it is this kind of determination that is required to make a film like this. That was Charlton Heston. Despite the vast array of extras, animals, carts, and props, there were three takes filmed of the Exodus with DeMille signaling the action by firing a 45 pistol each time. And after each take, a hundred laborers spread out to collect all the debris that had been created by these thousands of extras. Then the sand in front of the set was watered down so there would be no obscuring dust kicked up by the immense crowd before the cameras began to whirl. Each take lasted ten minutes, and then came two hours of reassembling the multitude back at the starting point. The first take was done early in the morning, the second around noon, and the third late in the afternoon. On that third take, there was a problem with the camera on top of the Gates of Ramses' set, the one that was supposed to shoot a reverse angle of the Exodus, with Heston, a tiny dot, in front of the thronging thousands behind him. The 73-year-old DeMille was halfway up the 107-foot height, with close friend and collaborator Henry Wilcoxon right behind him, when DeMille suddenly stopped and began to sway. His face was contorted in pain, and he was panting heavily, but managed to hook his elbow around a rung of the ladder, just as Will Coxon held him by the legs and told him he wouldn't let him fall. DeMille didn't think he could climb down, and Will Coxon didn't think he could carry him down, so the two men painfully inched their way up the rest of the ladder to the top of the huge set. By the time they got DeMille underneath an umbrella, he was, according to makeup man Frank Westmore, an odd shade of grey and shiny with sweat. Still on top of the set, Will Coxon moved to loosen DeMille's collar and told him that he'd better not try to climb down. But, De- but DeMille slapped his hand away, then slapped him away. Who the hell do you think you are? Nobody tells me what to do. Wilcoxon said they could rig something up to get him down, but DeMille's response was equally curt. Shut up, Harry. A camp doctor was brought up to the top of the set and ordered complete rest while DeMille stayed under the umbrella and Wilcoxon got the rest of the shots they needed. But DeMille remained adamant. He would climb down himself or he would die trying. Soon after dark, He slowly descended the ladder and was then rushed to a hospital in Cairo. Attending him were Dr. Hussein Ibrahim, the brother of the owner of the luxurious apartment where DeMille was living, and Max Jacobson. Both doctors told DeMille that he had suffered a major heart attack, but that if he rested in bed with oxygen for four weeks, he would recover. Forget it, gentlemen, he said. I'm going to the set in the morning. Henry Wilcoxon told him that it wasn't necessary, that the shots had all been rehearsed in advance and that he could direct them himself while DeMille got some much-needed rest. But DeMille shook his head. It was his movie, and he would be there in the morning. As far as DeMille was concerned, there was a film to be made, a film that he believed in, a film that he would be proud of, and nothing else mattered. From DeMille's point of view, Paramount had given him their money as well as their trust. And if word got out about the coronary, it would be a disaster for the film, and especially for Paramount Pictures, the success of which DeMille had done so much to bring about. People were depending on him. To him, neither his age nor his heart were relevant. He had to be there. So DeMille and Jacobson worked out a plan for him to continue directing the picture while enduring as little physical stress as possible. At 7.20 the next morning, DeMille's limousine pulled up to the set, and he stepped out, ready to work. He was gray and weak, but he was there. Assistant director Chico Day remembered that he was amazing that day, he made it through most of the day, but it was evident that he was relying on his crew to a great extent, with every one of them doing his own job as well as taking care of DeMille, as if he were their father. Will Coxon directed a couple of scenes, as did even DeMille's devoted granddaughter, Cecilia. With the concept art drilled into everybody's head, and with Will Coxon implicitly knowing how DeMille wanted scenes staged, the production continued to move ahead smoothly. Perhaps typical of DeMille at this point, he seemed less concerned about himself than the few people who knew the medical facts. For the remaining weeks of the location shoot, the old guy spared himself only the exertion that he gauged would probably kill him outright. He had always been good at calculating. Now he was engaged in the riskiest calculation of his life up to and including deceiving the studio about his health. DeMille wrote Paramount executive Frank Freeman back in Hollywood, saying, and I quote, Heston is doing fine work and is an impressive Moses. I have lost much weight, and most of us have suffered from dysentery, which we did not seem to be able to cure, so I sent for Dr. Max Jacobson, to come on from New York. He flew out here with Ewell Brenner. I did not mention it to the New York office or anyone else why I was sending for him. He has been here now for four days, and we are all in much better shape because of it. As you know, he is one of the best doctors in America, and I felt the situation was sufficiently important to bring him on at my personal expense, which I did. Now, clearly in saying this, DeMille was attempting to pass off his heart attack and weight loss as dysentery, but of course made no mention that he was paying for Jacobson out of his own pocket to avoid studio oversight and the corporate panic that would have resulted from a 73-year-old director making the most expensive movie in history while just having suffered a heart attack on location. DeMille's personal secretary, however, Joan Bruskin, knew the truth and wrote to her husband, saying, Don't mention it to anyone except as indigestion, but it is much more serious than that. I think it's entirely possible that Paramount executives, both in Hollywood and New York, never learned the truth. After a few final scenes shot in the Valley of the Kings, the production half of the shoot in Egypt finished on December 3rd, 1954, and DeMille was back home in California a week later. After a long break, production on the Ten Commandments resumed at Paramount Studios in March of 1955. An unusually long delay, mostly because of DeMille's ill health though that was never officially the reason, but also because of the deaths of his brother, Bill, and another close friend and collaborator, Eddie Slavin. Construction for the studio portion of the Ten Commandments dominated everything on the Paramount lot. Of Paramount's 18 sound stages, 12 were taken up with sets for the DeMille picture. There were 20 more weeks of principal photography to go then another year of special effects work. The parting of the Red Sea, for example, presented a particular problem because there wasn't a pool big enough to create the illusion. So the studio began demolishing the buildings that separated Paramount from RKO, then used the newly created space for a 200,000 cubic foot pool in which to film it. DeMille's longtime editor Annie Bakkens began editing as the film flowed into her cutting room. Although DeMille arrived on the set early, he usually wouldn't get into the projection room to look at his rushes until early in the evening. They would discuss it every day. Remembered DeMille's granddaughter, Cecilia, Annie was very much a part of the process. On one occasion, DeMille invited Charlton Heston to the studio to look at a rough assembly, of the Exodus sequence. Heston thought it looked marvelous, but tried to commiserate with DeMille about his heart attack, implying that the risk entailed in continuing with the Egyptian location work hadn't been worth it. No, no, DeMille said brusquely. I had to finish there and then. Can't you see that? We couldn't have made these shots anywhere else. Assistant director Chico Day recalled that once while walking with DeMille through the studio, an extra stopped them and inquired as to when he would be called for his scenes. In about 30 days, replied DeMille, the extra said nothing, but DeMille saw the same frayed, downcast look he had himself carried through innumerable stock company tours as a young man himself. Instead of continuing their walk. DeMille then peeled off $100 and pressed it into the man's hand. You can pay me back when you start working, he said, as he then walked away. That was the man that everybody called such an S.O.B., said Chico Day. I knew him very differently. He had a big heart. There was nothing small about this man. If DeMille had big scenes, as most of his pictures did, with lots of extras in them, He had often tried to schedule those scenes between Thanksgiving and Christmas so that extras could get a lot of work in during the holidays. But back on the set of The Ten Commandments, production ground on endlessly, with the golden calf sequence being a particular trial for everyone concerned. In fact, the sequence inspired one of the legendary stories about Hollywood, when one of the extras, a woman, walked up to an assistant director and inquired, who do I have to blank to get off this picture? In truth, this sequence was also very difficult for DeMille. What's wrong with you people? He once yelled while shooting the scene. Now, if you recall the golden calf scene, the assembled extras had to indicate um, a certain degree of debauchery and lasciviousness without actually showing anything because the film was... Of course, intended for all ages and Hollywood films of the period were quite chaste in comparison with our own times. Among the extras in this golden calf sequence was a young man named Robert Vaughn, who would of course go on to become a well-known actor in films and television. DeMille was like God, he remembered about shooting the scene. The assistant directors mostly handled us. We never approached his eminence ourselves. Not even close, said Vaughn. But DeMille, of course, wasn't all menace. Far from it, in fact. One day he came home complaining about the performance of Edward G. Robinson. The actor, DeMille told his granddaughter Cecilia, wasn't giving him what he wanted. Well, why don't you tell him what you want, she asked. DeMille seemed surprised. How could I dare say anything to so talented and respected an actor? He replied. In fact, he didn't say anything to Robinson, but instead waited for his performance to develop and ultimately became delighted with the actor's sardonic humor in the film. Oddly, the slight intimidation DeMille might have felt regarding Edward G. Robinson was not present when he was directing Sir Cedric Hardwick as the aged pharaoh. Of all the directors I have met, remembered Hardwick, DeMille was the only one who really knew what he wanted, even if he was sometimes forceful about it. In his 70s, DeMille's energy was unbelievable, Hardwick said. Of course, Hardwick would not have known what we know now, that the principal reason for that unbelievable energy was the concoction of drugs DeMille was being prescribed for by Dr. Jacobson. Because DeMille spent such a long time in pre-production on his films, his time on the set was usually very well focused. He always got his master shot first and wasn't afraid to play an entire scene all the way through without cutting if he felt it was going well enough. Generally, he would take a little more time in rehearsal so he could spend less time in actual shooting. And so even complicated scenes usually went fairly smoothly. In fact, Charlton Heston remembered that DeMille rarely shot more than six takes. At the end of the day, he would then usually hold his core crew members on the set while he picked the first shot for the next morning the idea being that the following day's work would then get off to a flying start, setting the pace for the entire day. The actor Vincent Price was entranced by his entire experience on the set of The Ten Commandments. DeMille, he said, was a wonderful director to work with, unlike any other in the business. He was 100% visually minded. Really, his scripts were very thin, but the visual effects he pulled off were marvelous. What he was interested in was what was on the screen, the use of crowds particularly. Price once told a story of acting against a blue screen on the set of the film, having to react to a spectacular combination of matte, miniature, and live-action shot in Egypt that combined to show the erecting of Pharaoh's obelisk. You're not reading that line with much conviction, DeMille pointed out. That's because I haven't the slightest idea what I'm talking about, replied Price. You're right, said DeMille. Let's go into the projection room and I'll show you. Price then watched what he correctly said was one of the most impressive scenes ever photographed. After seeing it, I changed my reading completely. One day a prop man inadvertently interrupted an important scene. Not knowing who it was, an angry DeMille demanded to know the identity of the offender. The prop man came forward and admitted his mistake. I just goofed, he said. DeMille responded, almost demurely, That's okay. Just don't do it again. Actor Donald Curtis, who witnessed the exchange, said about it, We all learn something from that. Face the music and survive. Stand up for yourself, but never make excuses. There was one plague that was planned for the film, but never used a plague of frogs Anne Baxter had appeared in a test that involved her screaming as hundreds of rubber frogs hopped up and down in her bedroom or onto her bed. But since frogs are not generally perceived as terrifying, her reaction seemed rather comic to DeMille, so the scene was never used. Something still not widely known is that DeMille cast Charlton Heston's newborn son Fraser as the infant Moses. What amazed Heston was that following his son's birth at three in the morning, the first wire he got came two hours later from DeMille himself. Congratulations, it said. He's got the part. Now wondering about this years later, Heston said, he must have had his people planted in the hospital. Yul Brenner, who played Ramseys, of course, had been a CBS TV director in New York until his acting career took off. A smart, sophisticated man, his friend Sidney Lamette chided him about going out to Hollywood. But soon, Brenner and DeMille formed a mutual admiration society of a kind, a relationship described by everybody who witnessed it as father and son. Part of the bond, I think, was that DeMille and the actor were both intrinsically imperious personalities who could get away with things, I suppose, that lesser men would never have even attempted. Not all of the cast basked in a similar approval. DeMille took particular umbrage at Deborah Paget, a beautiful woman to be sure, but an actress whose dramatic efforts continually failed to please him. Now, Miss Paget, he growled at her one day, we will have to do that again. Not that you show any signs of doing it any better, but maybe the fates will smile upon us yet. DeMille was probably responsible for making one of the great Hollywood musical careers when he hired a young man named Elmer Bernstein, initially only to supply some incidental music on the film. Victor Young, who had been DeMille's first choice to score every one of his films since Northwest Mounted Police in 1940 was in New York and committed to another project. I was taken over to meet him, said Bernstein, and he was very courtly. It was always Mr. Bernstein, even though I was old enough to be his grandson. He said, Mr. Bernstein, do you think you could do for ancient Egyptian music what Puccini did for Japanese music and Madame Butterfly? That was his first question to me. I thought about that, and I think I gave him the only answer that could have kept me on the film. I said, I really don't know. But I would sure like to try, and I think that was precisely the right answer for him. I think if I had said, oh yes, of course, I would have been out of there very, very quickly. By the end of May 1955, DeMille had suffered a major heart attack, the deaths of his brother and most trusted assistant director, and yet the Ten Commandments was only five days behind schedule. A remarkable feat considering the size of the film. He still relied on Dr. Jacobson for what he called the magic fluid that would battle his physical pains and help him get through the day. There was five or six weeks left of principal photography. He wrote to Jacobson and he was working hard to complete the job. I think he wrote, you are probably as much responsible for the completion of this picture as I will be, End quote. On August 13th, after 161 days of production, DeMille wrapped principal photography on the Ten Commandments, but ahead lay more than a year of special effects work. Of that, the most crucial was the parting of the Red Sea, the single greatest special effect in movie history, according to Steven Spielberg. Aside from these effects, one of the problems that DeMille had faced was photographing details that historians had only vague knowledge of. For instance, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. What script should he use? How to arrange the commandments on the tablets? What should the tablets look like? And what should the tablets be made of? For DeMille, nothing would do but the red granite of Mount Sinai itself. But of necessity, Paramount's prop department ended up making three sets of tablets out of fiberglass, which they then speckled with red granite, because the complete granite master envisioned by DeMille would just have been far too heavy for even Charlton Heston to hold. As 1955 became 1956, time became a problem. The film was locked into premiering in November of 1956, and by the summer of that year, DeMille and his crew began to sweat. The director okayed some composite shots that should have gone through the printer a few more times, but postponing the holiday season premiere would have been unthinkable. There were a few other details to sort through. Casting the voice of God presented understandable problems. We tried everything suggested by anyone, remembered DeMille, and in fact they tried individual actors. They tried a chorale. They tried voices underwater. They tried voices amplified in canyons. There was even some thought about using mechanical means, as with an organ with the sound department organizing the tones into words. We tried everything, and everything was wrong, said DeMille. Finally, the project was broken down into different voices for different segments. The voice heard by Charlton Heston at the burning bush is actually Heston's own voice, but slowed down. As DeMille put it, God spoke to Moses through his mind, so it was natural that it would be his own voice. Now, the voice of God on Mount Sinai was a different matter entirely, and there remains much conjecture as to whose voice it really belongs. In fact, it may be a combination of voices, those of Heston, DeMille, and perhaps a few other people. Getting the voice right, getting the special effects right, that was a painstaking process, but time had finally run out. In addition, Paramount having spent more money than anybody had ever spent on a movie before, was very nervous. When New York had made inquiries in the past about wrapping up the picture, DeMille had always the same response ready. Tell them we can stop right now and call it the Five Commandments. But he could do so no longer. A few weeks before the premiere of the film, DeMille shot an unprecedented introduction for it, in which... Parting the gold curtains, he strode toward a microphone that rose as if by magic from the floor to address the audience. The introduction put the film in the context of freedom versus slavery, God versus godlessness, democracy versus communism. Now, historically, this was an extremely shaky premise for the Egyptians, after all, were very religious. But DeMille was speaking to a world that was about to witness the brutal suppression of the Hungarian uprising, for example. And of course, the United States of the 1950s was a country very much uh, in the middle of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. His introduction also openly explained, um, and it's interesting, you don't often see this introduction anymore if you, for example, were to watch The Ten Commandments on ABC television, as it's been broadcast for so many decades, Um, the introduction is no longer a part of the screening of the film. But um, for contemporary audiences, it definitely was very much um, at the beginning of the movie. And in that introduction, DeMille openly explained that it had been necessary to Quote, fill in the areas of the life of Moses that the Bible had omitted. On the one hand, the emphasis on ancient texts diffused potential protests. On the other, for anybody that was paying attention, the nature of said texts also made the audience aware that parts of the narrative were, shall we say, conjectural. On September 18th, Charlton Heston saw the completed picture for the first time. The whole picture is so much more than the sum of its parts that I feel only the smallest responsibility for what's on the screen, Heston wrote in his diary. Everyone at the lunch, from Grover Whalen to Louis B. Mayer, seemed impressed with it. I guess I'll stand or fall on this one. There will be many more screenings in the next few months, and Heston's considered take would always be tempered. Unique and inimitable, it certainly is, he said, and often magnificent as well, but I'm afraid it's also shot through with flaws. But maybe the man who could have avoided the flaws also wouldn't have captured its magnificence. As for my own work, it could be better. The film's sole public preview was in Salt Lake City. The print DeMille and his entourage brought to town ran three hours and 45 minutes, a reporter for the desert news was present and wrote that and i quote moviegoers sat in awe completely spellbound other times they applauded demille must have been satisfied only 6 minutes would be cut from the final version the 10 commandments finally opened debuting at the criterion theater in new york on november 8 1956 the reviews were quite good and business was spectacular becoming Hollywood's greatest financial success since Gone with the Wind, 17 years earlier. For the next six months, DeMille embarked on what can only be described as a victory tour, flying around the world with the movie as it rolled out and meeting the most important luminaries everywhere he went. The Ten Commandments* was nominated for Oscars in seven categories, including Best Picture. But... Much to DeMille's uh, dismay, it only won for special effects. He knew the film represented the summation of his career. And he also knew that it had, as later generations would say, pushed the envelope in our direction, sound and costuming, among others. After the picture was released, DeMille called Elmer Bernstein one last time into his office. There, Scattered around the room were 40 or 50 paintings. DeMille asked him which one he liked best. The composer pointed to a painting of a Chinese scribe. DeMille wanted to know why he liked that one best. Well, Bernstein said, it has a tremendous sense of repose. A kind of peaceful feeling, and it gives me that same feeling. DeMille nodded and sent the composer on his way. When Bernstein got home that evening, the painting of the scribe was waiting for him, beautifully framed. The composer kept it in his Santa Barbara house for the rest of his life. The Ten Commandments was something more than a film, said Bernstein. And DeMille, well, he was much more than just a director. Thank you very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Wishing you the best. Until next time, this has been Stephen, your movie librarian. Bye-bye for now.
0: Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for tuning in today. If you're listening on the 2 p.m. call-in, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.